Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. The scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but for a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. 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 Thanks, Amira. Well, good morning, guys. It's so good to see you. What a beautiful day. It's so great to be together. This is literally our second service ever, so uh, no kinks to work out. Oh, really good. Well, my name is Ian. I'm so grateful that you're here. Uh, Sincerely, it it is an honor to celebrate Christ's resurrection with you. And, you know, as as we began planting this church, so much of it for me has been about spending time and getting to know people. Uh, Getting to know people that are on our team, the people that are here serving and set all this up. Getting to know random people uh, in coffee shops and uh, in places that our family goes, in parks. And, you know, the the thing that is so fascinating to me, the thing that is endlessly sort of um, surprising and never uh, ceases to amaze me, is just how truly amazing and interesting people are. Like, if you take the time to ask, and, and, and ask sincerely, like, how did you get here? What's your story? Um, and, and so often, you know, I meet people that have moved to New Jersey, and I'm like, like, why are you here? What are you in for? Right? No, we love New Jersey. But the reality is, if you will take the time and you will begin to seek to understand, you'll find that people are truly incredible. And so one, one of the heartbeats behind this church is, is sharing our stories. And so this morning, I get to tell you what I think is the best story ever written, ever told, ever lived out. And so I'm so grateful that you're here. And what I find when it comes to the story of the Bible, when I talk to people and and when I say, okay, like, I'm a pastor, and that usually sets the discussion off in a number of interesting, sometimes awkward ways. You know, they're then thinking through, what did I say before I knew this guy was a pastor? What sort of words did I use? And I just say, hey, look, look, I'm a pastor in New Jersey. 
So you, you, all of that's fair game, right? But what I find when I talk to people about this story is that so often they don't even know that it's a story. They're not even, uh, they're not even uh, hip to the fact that this is not a list, a book of rules, but it is a, an unfolding of a narrative. It is God investing himself in our world and putting himself near to us. It is filled with betrayal. It is filled with character development. It is filled with plot thickening and conflict and resolution. And so today on Easter Sunday, I want to just tell you the story as best as I can. The story that this book is trying to get us not only to see and say, oh, that's nice. But to see and say, wow, that I would give my life for. And so in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And so it goes in Genesis 1, the very first words in this library of scripture, this this collection of books that we have, are the words of God speaking the world into existence. Words create worlds, friends. And with each successive step, each successive day, on the second day and on the third day, God speaks new life into existence and then he pauses. And don't miss the pause. He steps back like a craftsman to observe what he has made. And he says, oh, it is good. And this creator God delights in all that he has made with the very words of his mouth. He looks upon light and sky, sea and shore, flower and bird, and remarks, it is good. The creation unfolds over the course of six days as God composes this symphony of creation, laboring over each note and how it will be played and how it will sound. And on the sixth day, the music crescendos, it builds to a climax. All of it has been leading up to this moment as the text tells us in verse 26 of Genesis 1. The God, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God makes people in his image. Friends, every person that you see, every person that you interact is made in the image of the infinite God. They all reflect, they all reflect, refract that light of God that he spoke into existence. And the text tells us that the, the people made in God's image are to rule over the things that God has made. They're to do it lovingly and carefully, like somebody stewarding a great gift. They're to join with God in this grand narrative of creation. And then in verse 31, as God strikes up the orchestra, now it is complete. Now each section can play its part, all of creation in harmony, playing this beautiful song C.S. Lewis describes Aslan as he creates the world, singing the world into existence, and God composes, and he strikes up the band, and all of creation is playing its part. 
And God, the master conductor, is not only leading it, he's right there in the middle of it, immersed in it, enraptured by it. The text keeps telling us, God keeps looking, and he keeps saying that it is good. It is good. This is who God is. God is a God who delights in what he has made with his very hands. And then the music resolves like a chord ringing out, sustaining over all of creation until the notes finally fade out. And then in the beginning of Genesis 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Even God takes a break, friends. And all of creation is endowed, is immersed with the rest of God. This delighting God, this resting God. And sure, the week will start again in our own culture, and different than this one. The first day of the week would be Monday, right? And Mondays have this relentless way of rolling about again. Don't think about your tomorrow right now. Let's be present right here. But we know that Monday comes, but all of it, the cycle of our lives, all beats to the drumbeat of God's rest, of the delight of its maker and the presence that makes for peace. And then we move forward in the story. And in Genesis 2, we zoom down. We move from this macro level of creation, God speaking the world into existence, and we drill down. And much like when God spoke the world into existence, he does something else. Now it says in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of of life. And the man became a living being. Before God has been speaking, he's been commanding, he's been calling light to go, and now this composer, this one who is composing a symphony becomes a sculptor. And he fashions with his hands those made in his image. And not only is he fashioning with his hands, but he draws near to them and it says that he breathed his life into their nostrils. He gives them his life. It's close enough. It's as close as a whisper, as close as a kiss. And God breathes out life again, just as when he spoke, but now he is so near. We see the nearness of this God. And in Genesis 2, it says in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. This composer, this sculptor now becomes a gardener. Making a place where those made in his image can live, can grow food. It says there that there are simply trees that are just beautiful to look at. You think of this, God is so abundant in his creation. He doesn't just make food, uh, trees that will provide food for things that we need. He makes trees that are just nice to look at. What a wasteful, extravagant, abundant God that we have. And in Genesis 2, the Lord is saying, this is what peace looks like. When there is enough to eat, this is what peace looks like. When there are trees that are just pleasing to look at, when there is beauty, this is what peace looks like looks like when I can see uh, my, those made in my image face to face and we walk and we talk closely. This is what peace looks like. 
And it says that the man and eventually the woman that were created in Genesis 2 were both naked and they were completely unashamed. And this is the picture that opens the entire narrative of Scripture. There is safety. There is abundance. There is harmony. There is enough to eat. There is no shame. There is good life-giving work to be done. There are trees that are simply beautiful to look at. And God is there, right there in the middle of all of it. Genesis 3 verse 8 tells us that God himself walks through the garden in the cool of the evening. Guys, can you sense this peace that fills this picture? And God gives of himself completely. He gives all of himself to those made in his image. His life is shared without reserve. He is God, and we are not. But he's not holding something back from us. But because he is God without limits, and since he made us, he knows that there are limits that we ourselves, because we are not God, cannot traverse. And in Genesis 2, verse 16, the Lord God commands. He says, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the question becomes, and this is for a different time, this is for a time where we share a drink or a, a cup of coffee, but why did God put the tree in the, in the garden in the first place, right? But what we see is that this God, as abundant and as extravagant as he is, as delightful as he is, will not choose for us. You see, perfect love doesn't need to coerce. In the midst of this beautiful, harmonious garden, there is still a choice. A tree that is not good for food or pleasing to the eye, but brings death. The text doesn't tell us why it's there. It just says that it is. And in Genesis 3, verse 4, a serpent. A serpent tricks Adam and Eve into eating the fruit. The text tells us in Genesis 3, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, sound familiar, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Remember what it said at the end of verse or the end of chapter two? It said they were naked and they were unashamed. Now that they have disobeyed, they've they've broken this covenant with God. They know themselves to be naked and they are ashamed. And shame enters the picture for the first time. It's so important that you hear this. Shame is not the beginning of the story. Friends, delight is the beginning of the story. God's face-to-face delight in you is the beginning of your story. Shame only comes when we try to step outside of what God has designed for us. But now, here we have it. Shame has entered the story. The man and the woman had been, been invited to tend the garden. 
They had been invited to care for its plants, to enjoy its fruit, but now instead of using their hands to cultivate this space, instead of using their hands to grow food, to, instead of using their hands to grow trees that will be pleasing for the eye, now what are they using their hands to do? They're sowing figs and leaves together to try to hide their shame. This God-given purpose to them has now been uh, completely miscast. And it says in verse 8 that, that when they hear God walking through the garden in the cool of the evening, as was his custom, instead of running to God, they run and they hide. Now you can ask yourself what you think you're doing when you're trying to hide from God. But I tell you, as a father of three small children, if I were to come home and my children were to run and hide from me, that would, that would have an effect on me. That would break my heart. And it says that they run and they hide because they know they are naked. You see, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, has brought dissonance into this grand orchestra of creation. It has brought division between the man and the woman, between man and woman and God. It has brought brokenness into the garden. But it doesn't stop there. You see, Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19 tells us that because they ate from this tree now, the ground itself is cursed. There are broken power dynamics between the man and the woman now. Danger enters into the world. Humanity and creation are now at odds with one another. The fruit from this tree that they took, that they thought God was withholding something of himself from them when God had given them everything. He said, you can eat from any tree of the garden, just don't touch that one. And this tree has brought the fruit. It has brought death, shame, injustice, disregard for God, poverty, starvation, racism, abuse, even natural disasters. See, we take the macro view of our world and we can come to a, a, a quite grim conclusion that it's all broken. And when we read Genesis 3, we kind of just sit there and say, yep, that makes sense. There's a curse. But if we could drill down, and if I could go around the room and I could talk to each one of you, and I would say, where have you felt it? Where have you felt this curse, this brokenness, this, this uh, terrible, unspeakable grief you see, for so many of us, if I were to be able to ask you, what is your story? Your story is marked with pain. Your story is marked with moments that you would rather have not lived through. And so the curse is not just this idea, this, this sort of philosophical thing that sort of happens to some people. It comes knocking at our very door. And you could conclude that some people are religious in this life precisely because this life is so hard. And the best we can do as, as men and women, the best we can do is sort of hope for a better future, a, a better thing to happen to us somewhere down the road. Or you could simply conclude, when you look at this world, this curse, this brokenness, that this world is sort of a rudderless accident. An anomaly of chance and evolution, and that there really is no meaning to any of it. You see, living with three small children, you need some combination of a hard hat, a hazmat suit, and some, some like really sturdy pair of boots. Any of you ever stepped on a Lego? 
just fallen down like you were shot, right? And listen, don't even think about having nice things. Not that you would, but if you did, having small children is not the place for that. You turn around for one second and stuff is just broken. You're like, wait, how did you get over there? How did that get on the floor? Things happen very quickly is all I'm saying, right? And we had one of those days yesterday where stuff was just spilling. It was just like, wow, I didn't even know that was there. And you have managed to spill it on the rug. Fantastic job by you. When you have something and it's broken, and for me, this is definitely my, my uh, understanding of this, and some of you are much more capable, but when, when something breaks in our house, I am not the guy who looks at it and says, don't worry, kids, I will fix it. That is not my gift. Some of you have that gift. My dad could fix a lot of things, and I don't know how he did it. But when my kids bring me something that is broken, my first thought is, oh, no. We're going to have to throw this away and maybe figure out how to get another one, depending on the value of the said toy, right? For so many of us, when we are handed something broken, we have no choice but to throw it away. And here we see, as we trace this story, this beautiful world that God has made is now broken. Now, will God throw it away? Will he do something else with it? That this master artist has crafted this world and it's broken, it's completely undone, it's cracked in pieces on the floor. You know in movies when they begin with a flashback to a long time before the story begins to show the important moments? Today we're here to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and now we fast forward many centuries to another tree. Now this tree seems even worse than that tree of good and evil, that tree that Adam and Eve took from. We saw Adam and Eve trying to fashion for themselves clothing out of figs and leaves. They were using their God-given gifts to, uh, instead of uh, tending the garden, they were then building clothes to hide their shame. But now we see that they have taken their skills and not merely used them to hide their own shame. They have weaponized them to shame others. And the Romans had developed this idea, this notion of torturous death called a cross. And so as we come to this tree, there is a man that hangs upon it, a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And just as the man chose the tree, the man and the woman in Genesis chose the tree in order to try to be like God, and in doing so brought a curse upon all of creation, now this man, who is in very nature God, empties himself completely, choosing this tree in order to undo the curse that we heard about in Genesis 3. And just as the man and the woman disregarded the will of God because they thought that God might be keeping something from them, so this Jesus of Nazareth does the will of the Father fully and completely. And as we look at this tree, this tree that Jesus of Nazareth is crucified upon, it would seem that we simply have another tragic hero, another man who thought he could give meaning and purpose to this absurd life and found that the powers of hatred, empire, and religion cannot be confronted without casualties. You see, people still today remark that Jesus was a great teacher and that he lived his life for all the right reasons and that we should uh, follow his great example. He was a martyr for all of the things that people should care about. But friends, what if it's more than that? 
You see, if Jesus was simply a nice teacher, then we live in the world as it's described in Genesis 3. A world of curse, of division, of brokenness, of irreparably uh, disproportionate and broken relationships. We live in that kind of world. But then the question I have for you today is, why do we long for the world of Genesis 1 and 2? Why do we hear that story of people walking face to face with God? Why do we hear the story of trees that are good enough to feed all the people involved, that are good enough and beautiful enough to look at? Why do we hear that world and say, something about that seems like I was made for that place. Something about that story seems like it should have something to do with me. And yet, when I look at my life or when I watch the news, all I see is brokenness. Where did this ache come from? In John chapter 20, one author gives an account, maintaining that on this day, some 2,000 years ago, everything changed. That the cycle of hopelessness, sin, and death were broken on a tree just as they began on a tree. That Jesus, after resting on the Sabbath day, after resting on Holy Saturday, walked out of the grave on Easter Sunday. And at that moment, one of Jesus' friends, Mary Magdalene, she doesn't know what's happened. She doesn't know the story yet. And she's gone because she thinks that hope is lost. And she's gone to the tomb simply to mourn the life of her friend. And she's standing outside the grave. And when she gets there, she realizes something, something terrible. Because she comes to the grave of her friend. They had put a large stone in front of it. And when she arrives there, she sees that the stone has been rolled away. And her first thought is, oh, why? This too? It wasn't enough that they crucified him. Now somebody has come and stolen his body. Now somebody has come and desecrated his grave. And she's weeping She's undone. She's already lost this this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, who loved her in a way that was almost indescribable, that loved her in a way that she couldn't quite have ever, ever fathomed. She's standing outside his tomb, and she thinks that somebody has come, and not only have they shamed him in death, but now they've shamed his body. She's crying. And John chapter 20, verse 11 reads, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And then John puts in this little detail. It says that Mary supposed Jesus to be the gardener. The gardener? Hmm. Supposing him to be the what? the gardener, this may seem like some nice little detail, some nice little note that the author of this particular biography of Jesus got from one of the people involved, but supposing him to be the gardener, some coincidences are too good to be true. Where did all this start? 
Where did God, the Lord God, plant in order to be enmeshed and immersed in life with those created in his image? Well, he walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. From where were the man and the woman removed when they were cursed because they disobeyed God? Well, it was a garden. From the garden, it would seem that John is saying that the garden, the garden that was lost, the garden of face-to-face relationship with God, the garden of justice and beauty, the garden with no shame, the garden with life-giving work, is being planted all over again. That instead of the tree of knowledge upon uh, which, being at the center of this garden, now there is a cross upon which Jesus gave his life for every single person for the entire world right at the center of this garden. Mary supposes Jesus to be the gardener. And friends, he is. And he is planting that garden again anew in our lives. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. He says her name. You see, the garden was about relationship. It was about this God who was so cosmic and sovereign in his power, not just speaking at a distance, but being close enough that he could whisper to us, close enough that he could draw near and kiss. The garden was always about relationship. And now Jesus, upon his resurrection, one of the first things that he says is, Mary. He says her name. Friends, resurrection is about relationship. Resurrection isn't something that Jesus did to show what kind of magic tricks God can do. Resurrection is God calling out to you saying, I want to know you. I want to know you. And I have overcome everything that would keep you from me. Mary, would you just imagine him? He is speaking your name here this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. And just like the first creation, resurrection, new creation, is about the whole world. Not just our souls, not just some uh, part of us that can be kept in private. It's about the entire cosmos being put right, being removed from this broken cycle of cursedness, being given a new life. And in this cosmic endeavor, God is calling out to us, calling us by name. Adam and Eve took from the tree because they thought that they were in the dark. They thought that God was keeping something from them, and they wanted to be like God. And look at the mess that they made. Friends, so many of us in here today have spent so much energy, so much time trying to circumvent relationship with God. And what have we found? We have found that we have using, we're using our God-given ability, our God-given hands, to not do things that are great or with purpose, but to sew fig leaves together to hide our shame and our nakedness. And to us this morning, Jesus is calling out our name. He's saying, you don't have to do this anymore. Because on the cross, Jesus undid all the powers of brokenness, of poverty, of disaster, of grief, and of pain. He nailed them to a cross. And in his resurrection, he has drawn near to every person, calling each one of us out by name, walking with us, and offering his broken body on behalf of our world. Friends, he's calling your name this morning. You know, as a father, as I said, when stuff is broken, I don't really have many options. I have to get the broom out, get the dustpan, sweep it away, put it in the trash. 
But when we see the beauty of the story fully, the story of the goodness of creation, we see the master artist at work. And God not only does his work, his beautiful work in creation, he does his beautiful work in redemption. God doesn't sweep up the pieces and throw it in the trash. God can take broken pieces and make them into something new and something beautiful. There's a Japanese art form that basically is this principle at work. Taking broken things and not merely repairing them, but making them into something new, something with more value. Highlighting their scars. This art form is called kintsugi. And the practitioners of it use really uh, expensive metals to fuse uh, ceramic pots and, pa- and things that have been broken apart. And so if you can see, Mike, can you put that picture up? On the left there, I would be stuck there. Like, well, that was a nice face. I liked it. But in the hands of a master craftsman, in the hands of the God who makes all things new. He takes his life as sort of the adhesive there, this beautiful gold metal that fuses these pieces together. He puts his life in ours and then makes us into something new. You see, practitioners of Kintsugi don't just try to replace the thing. This traditional art uh, consists in joining fragments and giving them a new and more refined aspect. Listen to this. Every repaired piece is unique because of the randomness with which ceramic shatters and the irregular patterns form that are enhanced with the use of metals. Every piece made new is unique because we're all broken. We break in different ways. And God takes our brokenness. He infuses it with his life and makes us new. The the resurrection of Jesus tells us that God doesn't need to dispose of broken things. That his love is so big, so sovereign, so faithful, that it takes the cosmic brokenness of our world and the hidden idolatry of our hearts, cracked on the floor, though they may be. And he not only repairs them, he renews them. Jesus on the cross is creation undone. Jesus on Easter Sunday is is the beginning of a new day. A new word, another let there be light, the final word on sin and death. Friends, the brokenness in the garden is not the end of the story, nor is it the beginning. Not because the brokenness isn't real or just a detour in the story, it is broken through and through, but the brokenness doesn't get the last word. Jesus takes on flesh, and on the cross, he himself is dashed to the ground, broken like a priceless vase. But Jesus, raising from the dead, shows that brokenness and cursedness and hopelessness is not the end. He is raised to newness, new life, bearing the scars of his suffering, like the gold adhesive on these ceramic vases. Friends, if you are broken here this morning, God will not throw you away. He is wanting to make you new. Jesus' resurrection on this Easter Sunday morning, making all things new. Let us pray. Beautiful God, Lord, when we survey the story, God, when we see who you are, when we begin to see your delight in us, God, when we begin to see your intentions for us, Lord, we know ourselves to be loved. 
And then when we see the story play out, God, when we see you take on flesh, you lived our life, you walked the streets of our world, and then you went to a cross. And then on this Easter Sunday morning, you got out from out of the grave, saying that sin and death no longer have the final say, God, but your word and your word alone will stand for all of eternity. And that word that you speak out is not only it is finished, it is done, everything that was broken is now being made new, but that word that you speak is our name. Father, resurrection is about relationship. God, you are a God who would not be uh, shouting at a distance, but comes to whisper to us and longs to be near to us. So God, would we begin to see our story in light of this grand story? Our lives in light of the master hands of the artist who works and fashions everything to his glory, God. God, we begin to see that we are not irreparably broken on the floor, but you are mending us together, making us new. God, you are beautiful and good. We thank you for your resurrection this Sunday morning. We thank you that we can celebrate in light of who you are. It's in your name we pray, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, upon his resurrection, came and he sat down and he ate with his friends. And oftentimes in the story, when he gave them broken bread, they saw him for who he was. They recognized him for the first time. And so today, as we finish up our time together, I'm going to invite you to this table. It's right here at my feet just a moment we'll invite you it's the Lord's invitation to come and just as Jesus took bread and he broke it he also gave his broken body to the world and he offers that to us here this morning and just as Jesus took a cup and he blessed it so also he blessed this world by giving of his life completely and so friends as we invite you to come this morning We pray that you will see that just as you put this real uh, bread in your mouth, as you take a real sip from this cup, that Jesus really came into this world, that he really walked near to us so that he might know us for all of eternity. So I'm going to pray over our communion table, and then we're going to invite you to come. And for those of you on this side of the room, we'll invite you to come down this aisle. For those of you on this side, you can come down this aisle. We do have a gluten-free piece of bread if you uh, need that for your uh, digestion. Merciful God, we pray that as we come to this table, we know ourselves loved and known by you. God, that your mercy is for us, not for just for other people, not just for other stories, God, but for us. And God, we ask that you would draw near to us as near as our very breath. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this table. We thank you that we get to sit down with you and that in that you make all things new. It's in your name we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.